Partially Examined Life Precognitions introduce philosophical topics for upcoming episodes to give you a few weeks to do the reading yourself. They also serve as quick, standalone summaries of the work. You can read more about these topics, get the works we cover, and listen to Partially Examined Life conversations at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer outlining Alfred North Whitehead's The Concept of Nature, most of which was only slightly adapted from a series of lectures he gave in 1919 at Trinity College. He sets out to tell us first how philosophers should approach descriptions of nature. This approach involves two elements. First, just talk about nature, not about the relationship between nature and perceiving minds. It may well be that Kant is right and the experienced world is shaped and colored by the structure of the human mind, But nonetheless, if you're trying to do science and not philosophy, you need to just talk about the world of our shared experience. Second, you need to actually pay attention to the way the world is actually experienced, and not heedlessly impose some sort of interpretive theory on that world. He thinks that our current common descriptions of nature are infected by grammar with its subject and predicate structure, which is also reflected in Aristotelian metaphysics. We talk about nature as essentially a matter of substances that have attributes— Even though we only seem to perceive the attributes, like the greenness and texture and shape of a leaf, there must be, according to this way of thinking, a substance that underlies and has all these properties, and it's the substance that is the reality, whereas some, or maybe all, the attributes are just effects of how our minds interact with this substance. Whitehead rejects this picture, and proposes instead that what we perceive, that is, what nature really is, is events. Even when I seem to be contemplating an object, like my blue coat, What I'm really experiencing is a duration of time. The event is the adventures of that object, the blue coat, through that time. He warns us against what he calls the bifurcation of nature, where we might distinguish between the world of apparent nature, which includes the blue of the coat, and the world of causal nature, which on Locke's view of primary and secondary qualities does not include anything actually blue, but just some object with a shape that, when light bounces off of it and back to our eyes, causes us to invent the color. Whitehead describes this view from Locke, which dominated 17th and 18th century materialism, as what the Aristotelian view previously described evolved into when scientists developed the transmission theories of perception. Whitehead followed Barclay in rejecting Locke's view. There's no justification for positing that shapes are objective and real, while colors are subjective and unreal. Perceptions of shape are just as much the outcome of transmission as are perceptions of color. Whitehead says, so far as reality is concerned, all our sense perceptions are in the same boat. The materialist view gives us a picture of a pre-existing space-time grid that matter, or ether if there's no matter, then occupies. But if you admit the bifurcation of nature, then what warrant would you have in ascribing space and time to reality, just because we perceive space and time? Instead of admitting this bifurcation of nature between the world we experience and the world described by science, Whitehead insists that these are one and the same, and that this one world of nature is populated by very different kinds of objects, such as color, coats, molecules, and the number two. All these are abstractions from experience. Likewise, space and time are not a pre-existing grid in which objects lie, but are themselves abstractions from experience. Now, you might think that if something is an abstraction, then it's a mental creation, an idea. But Whitehead's view is that these are real aspects of the experienced world, which in keeping with his initial warning that we should stop talking about mind's influence on experience, we should just call the world. It may well be that metaphysically, reality is quite different than this experienced world, and Whitehead is actually known for his theological writings, but that's not the topic of this book, not something that the scientist describing nature has to worry about. The world of phenomena is large enough for anything science needs to describe. The task of the philosopher of science is, according to Whitehead, to lay out a structure that lets us understand the connections between the various aspects of experience. If all we experience are events, then how do we use abstraction to divide these up? 
How exactly do we get space, time, motion, and objects? Moreover, Whitehead wants to give an account of space and time that accords with relativity. This means being able to accommodate different spatio-temporal frames of reference. Galileo theorized that an object that we would consider at rest on the Earth would, from the point of view of someone on Mars, seem to be moving. Einstein added in his theory of special relativity that someone traveling near the speed of light would experience time in a different way than we do. Whitehead thinks that the four-dimensional geometric system that he creates in chapters 3 through 6 of this book will enable him to characterize the facts motivating Einstein's theory of general relativity without saying, as Einstein does, that space is curved, which is a claim that Whitehead claims he can make no sense of. Whitehead describes the method that he uses to get from experienced events to the space-and-time grid used by physicists to talk about motion as extensive abstraction. Whereas traditional geometry starts with points, lines, and planes as intuitively obvious, Whitehead wants to derive these from experience. He says what we experience is duration with ragged edges, with the present always implying the past and anticipating the future. What counts as now for us depends largely on our attention. If we're just paying attention to one static object, like the coat lying on my chair, then it's easier for now to extend over a longer period of time. Whereas if the coat gets set on fire, then we experience the before and the after of the coat. By the after period, we no longer consider the before period as now. This demonstrates that we have a conception of different durations. Even though we don't yet have a way to measure them, we can still say that the period of time when the coat started to smoke before going into full blaze was part of the larger duration of the burning. Once we have the idea of durations nested like that within each other, we can try to focus on smaller and smaller durations in which less and less is going on until we approach an ideal of simplicity where the duration has no length at all. This is a moment. Though we never experience such a thing, it presents an ideal of simplicity which we need as scientists in order to focus on the relation between the elements within this moment. For instance, the condition of various particles that make up the coat as of this frozen bit of time as compared with their condition at some later moment. Whitehead performs the same kind of abstraction with space, and says that extension, which enables us to talk about the relative lengths of durations, is the very same property when ascribed to lengths in space. You can apply this method of extensive abstraction to both time and space at the same time, and come up with what he calls an event particle, which has both spatial and temporal dimensions as zero. You might call these event particles the ultimate components of the universe, but Whitehead says this would be putting the cart before the horse. After all, we created these particles through abstraction. It's not like these are tiny, independent atoms that then come together to build the universe. In performing any of these abstractions, we have to remember what we're doing. We're deriving the idea of a moment, or a point, or an event particle. So we can't describe what we're doing by saying that we're selecting smaller and smaller sets that converge on a point, because that would be using the term point in its own definition. Instead, we have to characterize it by the class of sets itself, which he calls an abstractive set. And there are multiple ways that we can construct this class of sets that shrinks down to any given point, too. We could start if we're looking at space, with the world, or with this room. And even with a given starting point, there are infinitely many next smaller sets we could pick. So even within a given space or time system, there are infinitely many abstractive sets that end up picking out the same point. Whitehead invents another term for us, abstractive element, which picks out all these abstractive sets within a space-time system that converge to the same point. Now if you add in other space-time systems, things get even more complicated. Any one point of my system on Earth is going to be picked out by an abstractive element, that is, by the same process of picking out ever-shrinking sets on Mars, or on the near-light-speed spaceship, even though these other frames of reference involve different time systems. So you can think about a given point in space as an intersection of two spatial systems, or a moment as a point of intersection of two time systems, even though, as relativity tells us, another time system might not judge lengths or distances of time or simultaneity the same as we would. 
If the fast spaceship comes close enough to us here on Earth, there could be a moment and place that we would both call here and now. Even though we'd be using different space-time systems to refer to that time and place, we'd still be referring abstractly to a shared event particle, where the two systems intersect. This way of looking at things links all the different space and time systems up into one four-dimensional system, in which there is no master space-time coordinate grid that overlays the whole thing, but where we use event particles to relate, point by point, one system to another. Whitehead derives within this relative space-time system notions of perpendicularity and congruence and the measurability of space and time and position within a given space-time system. Once you give up the idea of a pre-existent master space-time grid and instead want to derive all these things from the interrelations of observed portions of space-time, the math gets complicated. Each moment within a time system amounts to a slice of space within that system, a whole picture of space at that moment, and Whitehead calls this an instantaneous space. But then how do we relate the elements of one moment with another? How can we account for movement, for instance? If we were to look at one frozen moment and see a car and the road ahead of it, we'd want to say that if the car keeps moving that way, then it will traverse that road. But it will never traverse that road, that is, the road as pictured in that moment. It will instead, in future moments, be on the corresponding bit of future road. To avoid this awkward way of speaking about movement, Whitehead says we abstract further and invent the idea of a timeless space, which correlates the successive instantaneous spaces of a given time system. Timeless space is the space of physical science and of common thought. It's what you use when you're doing geometry, for example. A point in geometry is really a class of event particles, where you'll remember that an event particle itself is a very complex class, ultimately abstracted from experience duration. Timeless space is also what you use for figuring out where on the road the car will be in continuing its current trajectory. You ignore the fact that the car and the road are both in flux, constantly undergoing minute changes. Objects such as the car, like timeless space, are complicated abstractions. While all we really experience are events, there are certain characters in events which recur, and we call those objects. Whitehead defines objects as elements in nature that do not pass. He distinguishes what he calls sense objects, like the color blue, with perceptual objects, like the blue coat, and scientific objects, like the molecules that make up the coat. These are all abstractions, and thus are all real aspects of nature. He doesn't want to say that real nature causes them to appear, which would be the old way of talking. So instead he talks about the ingression of objects into events. Different kind of objects ingress into events in different ways. And he uses this to describe the difference between illusion and reality, and the status of scientific objects. Among perceptual objects, he distinguishes between physical objects, like the blue coat I'm looking at, and delusive perceptual objects, like the blue coat I might think is behind what in fact is a mirror that I'm looking in. In the first case, the blue coat situation, that is, it's being visible hanging in front of me, is what he calls an active conditioning event, which is the normal kind of ingression of an object into events. All the other events that are not the focus in that case of my recognizing the blue coat are in this context passive conditioning events like the situation of my standing on the floor and the positions of the earth and the sun that affect what I see and how I see it, but which aren't immediately relevant to the object I'm recognizing. When a mirror is introduced and the coat is in fact behind me, then the coat's image is the delusive perceptual object whose situation is the active conditioning event. But the situation of the coat itself has become one of the passive conditioning events involved in the delusion. Along with the situations of the light in the room, the mirror itself, the air, my eyes, and everything else that's contributing to the experience. You can think of the word conditioning here as habitual. Objects are aspects of events that for one reason or another we get in the habit of recognizing. Scientific objects like atoms and molecules are ones that we posit through scientific work to explain observed events. They ingress into events differently than physical objects, but are no less real for that. 
However, we can't forget that these are just abstractions carved out of experienced events, and so while science can and does look for patterns among the behavior of these objects, we shouldn't get too hung up on notions like causality, which are founded on the idea of a metaphysics of objects that somehow affect each other in ways that Hume famously found very mysterious. So there's no a priori reason why we shouldn't observe in nature so-called action at a distance. So Whitehead's view should fit in much more comfortably, not only with relativity, but with quantum theory, which wasn't developed until right around his death. Toward the end of the book, Whitehead describes all the effects an object has on everything else as the physical field due to that object, and says that, from page 190, the object cannot really be separated from its field. The object is in fact nothing else than the systematically adjusted set of modifications of the field. In this book, we get Whitehead's first pass at what he later calls process philosophy. Though here, we only really get its implications for physical science, this events-not-objects picture of reality is fertile ground for analyzing biological systems, ecologies, teleology, consciousness, and more. This overall approach constitutes what was really influential about his philosophy, and not the particular mathematical and conceptual structure that he built up to depict space and time and reinterpret relativity. (music) 